welcome to Uncommons, a podcast focused on Canadian politics. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. I'm also the Member of Parliament for Beaches East York. And today we're focused on COVID-19, but also a question of human rights. And we're joined by a really interesting guest, someone who I have looked up to and, and certainly leaned on as a Member of Parliament for human rights advice, Alex Neve, Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity, Nate. And you have, your organization has, and, and you're leading that organization, have published a, a Toronto Star op-ed recently, but a, a more specific and detailed document putting human rights at the center of the COVID-19 response and a manifesto of sorts of 10 points. And I want to get to that and, and focus most of our conversation there. But I also wanted to ask at the outset, just you've lived a very interesting life focused on human rights. And in the role that you are in now, you obviously, that, that, that is the entirety of your focus as, as a professional. But how did you come to this focus on human rights and, and before you were in the role that you're in, uh, how much did you focus on human rights? Uh, well, it actually really did begin with Amnesty International um, and many a moon ago when I was in law school. So this is back in the 1980s. I, I went into law school knowing that I very much wanted to, to be a lawyer working for social change in some way, but but not really having a precise idea as to what that would look like. Uh, I went to Dalhousie University in Halifax and, and one day walking past uh, a notice board in the student union building, saw a poster advertising the monthly meeting of the local Amnesty International group, which I'd heard a little bit about, but didn't know a great deal about Amnesty. Uh, I was certainly interested enough that I went to the meeting. And I guess, you know, we all have these moments in life which you never imagine are coming at you until they're there. Right. Uh, and that was one of those moments because it really completely changed the course of my life. I, I think, number one, the Amnesty message of activism uh, which in the mid-80s certainly resonated and I think very much does today as well, that it's a big, sometimes very ugly world out there with huge problems that often seem overwhelming. And it's very easy, therefore, to imagine that there's nothing that I, as an individual, could possibly do to affect change. Uh, and in the midst of that, amnesty comes with offerings says exactly you know what here's one thing you can do right now yes the problems are big but here's one thing you can do right now to make a difference for one prisoner or to try to get rid of one bad law and that was so appealing and the I other side sitting, just before i remember sitting in a church basement a number of years ago writing letters as part of a, an amnesty campaign and all my thoughts went to is this going to make a difference and then immediately thought well, it has previously, you know, not in all instances doesn't make a difference, but these campaigns, they sometimes do. Yeah. Well, advocacy, whether it is that uh, that tried and true uh, write a letter uh, style of, of advocacy or or all the other ways in which advocacy has grown so much in the, the nearly 60 years that Amnesty has been around now, uh, it does certainly make a difference. Sometimes very direct uh, that that cascade of letters 
does open a prison cell door and someone is freed. Other times it's intangible and, and indirect. It's laying the ground. It's starting to shift attitudes, build pressure such that, you know, six months or two years down the road, uh, there will be change. Uh, and uh, I think what you really have to hold on to is what we do know is that staying silent will never affect change. Uh, so certainly in whatever way it's possible to use your voice, it absolutely makes a difference. And could you have ever imagined when you first went to that meeting that you would then have the role that you, you have today? Uh, I certainly couldn't have imagined and you know and here it is I've been in this role for 20 years and I think that amnesty meeting was probably a good no, 35, 36 years ago. Uh, and it's just been the greatest honor I could possibly imagine. Uh, the people I get to work with, uh, the vital and important issues uh, that I've uh, been able to link arms with, with other activists and, and try to affect change. Uh, it's, it's been so fulfilling, so meaningful, and so incredibly humbling. Well, without question, you are in the arena, as it were. And so, in terms of the issues that you have been focused on, there are so many, and yet we face a crisis at the moment, and you have inserted your voice, as you do, to say human rights should be at the center of government's response and society's response to COVID-19. Now, the correspondence that I receive in my office is focused on the negative economic fallout and focused on increasing testing capacity and, and how do we ensure that we are getting through this and, and addressing this from a healthcare perspective and so why why human rights why put human rights at the center of, of this crisis I guess I would begin by noting that that both of those issues that are uh, constituting the bulk of what you're hearing about in your office are the human rights side of this as well uh, I think often when people hear, that the human rights advocates are showing up uh, to engage in debate, uh, that it's usually that we're there to, to, to stop the government from doing and, exactly. and to criticize abuses and excesses. And obviously that is a very important part of human rights work. But an absolutely crucial part of human rights work is also calling on governments to do something, to act, to respond. And I think both of those issues, uh, the economic hardship and the ways in which that has devastating impact on people's livelihoods, their abilities to pay their rent, to meet their basic needs. Uh, there's several internationally protected human rights that are right at the heart of that, and government has an obligation uh, to make sure those rights are being protected. And then the second area, uh, the the pandemic itself, uh, this this cruel virus, uh, and the the risk it poses both to people's health, but of course, in far too many cases, to their very lives, uh, that too is, is an essential uh, internationally protected right, and, and two key rights there, the right to health in numerous international human rights treaties, and the right to life, uh, perhaps the most central and essential right of all. So it begins there uh, in us saying governments must respond to this crisis because human rights are at stake. Now, yes, obviously we're seeing those responses responses, certainly right across Canada. But there's many governments around the world which were very slow off the mark. Uh, uh, we even heard some leaders, of course, referring to it all as a hoax and, and trying right. to be dismissive. Um, and there's a human rights critique when we see governments failing to take action here as well. So it begins uh, right where you're hearing from your constituents. 
I found it interesting that you have 10 points in the, the, the calls to government to put, and, and really more broadly than government, to society, I would say, to put human rights at the center of the response to COVID-19. And the second point is the traditional strict limits uh, to protect civil liberties that any government intervention, be it travel restrictions or, or other restrictions in people's uh, mobility and, and freedom, should be necessary and, and proportionate and, and there's a strict limits through which we are able to restrict people's rights as, as a matter of uh, negative rights in, in, in sort of a, a more legalistic way. You mentioned the word positive in your encapsulation of rights in that first instance there. And so I think, I think it's interesting. Sometimes as a lawyer, we have this debate about negative and positive rights, uh, it's nice to as be in parliament sometimes to not have to worry about that conversation so much to say what is enforceable in court and what, I mean, really as a parliamentarian and looking at spending money and looking at putting measures in place to support people, I can freely be focused on positive rights and to say, how do we best realize people's right to health? How do we best realize people's right to life? And it's not just about how do we protect people's rights in, in, the, in the course of restricting them as best as we can, but also how do we best realize and make sure people, uh, w the government supports are there to make sure we're re realizing them in the most fulsome way that we possibly can. And that's, I like that that was point number one on, on, on your list of 10 points. Um, I, 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 you, you've been a critical, you, we, we, you, had, we, you joined us in November of 2017 at a church uh, where we did a town hall here in Beaches, East York, and you were very critical then of the xenophobia coming from the United States and the leadership in the United States. Uh, I, I expect you would have the same criticism when we look at the health response and the, and the right to health sitting here today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and certainly that is one of the key principles we've highlighted that uh, you know, very early on, we saw that the pandemic was being either used as an excuse uh, or certainly uh, was fueling ongoing racism and xenophobia. Uh, and um, uh, famously, of course, we have President Trump who, uh, who consistently continues to refer to it as the Chinese virus. Uh, but, but there's manifestations of that at all levels. We know that, that right-wing groups using it as an opportunity to scapegoat and even carry out attacks against refugees and migrants. Um, right. Certainly there's been many reports right around the world, including even some in Canada, of, of people of East Asian or Chinese uh, descent uh, being, uh, being, being as physically assaulted in some instances, or at least uh, mocked or, or called names, even, even sometimes kids in, in playgrounds. Um, that's obviously all very, very troubling. There's never an excuse for that. Um, and it's, I think, really important to be reminding all of us collectively, but certainly our political leaders, of how important it is, uh, certainly not to be pandering to that in any way, uh, exactly. but also to be stepping up and, and calling it out and making it clear that there's no space for that at all. We had that happen. There was a local business owner, a uh, flower shop, and owned by an Asian family, and there was racism directed towards them uh, by someone who popped into the store and, and used derogatory language and it was horrible and yet there are m these moments in time where the thing that happens is is awful and should be condemned but so much depends upon the response and so we saw the community respond in a very positive way to support that family and as a society we I think you're right call it out and then also wrap 
people are, you know, wrap, uh, wrap around those people to, to provide the supports necessary and, and, and lift them up as best as we can. Um, I think that's a really important point that, yeah, I mean, yes, obviously, when we're talking about human rights obligations and responsibilities, we quite readily focus on the government, and we should. Uh, they have obligations, responsibilities, they have resources, they're the ones who have the power to enact laws, etc. But but human rights more broadly, including in how it's framed in, in documents like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, are absolutely clear that it's about all of us, uh, that we have a collective responsibility to make sure that rights are upheld. And and it's in moments like that, when, when, when we witness or become aware of racism in our community, that we all have the opportunity to take on that role. And I think there are those specific instances, and then even more broadly, when we look at the economic fallout, you use the word, you use the words collective responsibility, and then also the word solidarity in the document. And I, and I don't know that there's been any other moment in time in, in my life of I'm, I'm 35 years. And so maybe there are moments in time for uh, people who have lived through other crises. But there's been no other moment of time where, where that language of collective and solidarity has meant more. I think that's true. I mean, I, I think you're right to point to the fact that it's often something we see uh, when when a terrible crisis, uh, you know, whether it's a hurricane or uh, or or a public health crisis of this sort or, or many other instances, we, we see the very best in people. Uh, people rally to, to help their neighbor and, and, and even to make sure they're there to help people they don't know. Uh, but I guess what is so different about COVID is we've never really, in, in, including in my uh, 57 years, uh, longer than your 35 years, had a crisis of this sort, which literally is impacting every corner of the world at the same exactly. time. And we're, the, we're therefore seeing that global sense of solidarity. It's not just uh, localized where a flood or a hurricane has happened. It, it truly is people all over the world finding ways to come together, show direct support to healthcare workers, uh, show support to families that are that are facing uh, the impact of of the virus firsthand and to just generally be there for each other to kind of boost morale and lift spirits so it's a good point because this the virus is indiscriminate it affects all people no one is is immune as it were and yet there are certain more vulnerable populations in our society and, and at at number three in, in your list you note the importance of responding to better address and to, in the course of our responses, we help everyone. We make note of the fact that certain communities will need special help. And when I go through that list, I'm comforted in some ways by the government's response, I have to say. So the first is extra measures for indigenous communities, including remote communities. And we saw $305 million more million specifically directed in, in the phase one measure of support that the government's announced. You have domestic violence on your list, and we saw supports additional 10, I think just over $50 million for sexual assault centers and, and support groups in that way. Uh, you have homelessness, inadequate housing on your list. Obviously, evictions are a provincial issue, which the provincial government in Ontario, to its credit, has said there's going to be a moratorium, moratorium on evictions. And then we have 150 some odd million dollars to focus specifically on our homeless population. Um, precariously employed, there we've expanded well beyond the EI. So I go through the list and, and, I, and I'm comforted in many respects. And, and then I get to a couple of, of touch points that I, that I struggle with. One, the prison population. I, I think it's fair to say we haven't sufficiently acted quickly enough to address the, the vulnerabilities of the prison population. And uh, maybe you could speak to that. But the one that really stands out to me, and I wonder what your thoughts are, but you have refugee claimants. And 
previously you have you have been a, a very vocal critic of the safe third country agreement and now we see on a temporary basis canada maybe for good public health reasons at, at the end of the day uh, say temporarily we are going to close down all irregular border crossings and everyone's going to be returned to the u.s and now the media is reporting that those individuals are going to be deported and, and potentially in, in some cases uh, put at risk of, of you know their lives will be at risk and so as I go to, I listed a very a number of positive aspects of the government's response, but but there's one that doesn't coincide and, and there's one, it doesn't meet the the criteria I think you're setting out for ourselves in the course of a human rights response. Uh, absolutely. Well, maybe a couple of points on this topic. Uh, I think uh, it's really good that you've highlighted principle number three about vulnerable communities, because in many respects, that probably goes to the heart of why a human rights response to the crisis matters so much, uh, because this is all about ensuring that as governments do respond, no one's going to be left behind. And in particular, that those who almost always are left behind uh, and have already been left behind uh, are going to get the, the special attention and assistance and, and deliberate action that's so necessary. Uh, and yes, absolutely, uh, there's been some, some positive announcements made with respect to a number of the communities that we've highlighted. Um, you know, obviously the promise that money will be there is, is part one. Part two then becomes, will it roll out effectively? Yeah. Will it be implemented in the right kind of consultation with the affected communities, etc.? Uh, I think we also, in a number of these areas, see that, that thorny issue that often arises in Canada when both federal, provincial, territorial, and even municipal governments um, have a piece of the puzzle. Uh, how well coordinated is it? Is it going to be consistent right across the country? So something like homelessness and, and housing, for instance. And I think there's an important role for the Canadian government to step in and make sure that's the case. Uh, but you're right as well to highlight that there are, I think, some particular issues we flagged there uh, where we're not yet seeing the kind of encouraging uh, announcements and policy change uh, that we should. So, for instance, with respect to prisons and, and jails and immigration detention centres, or have seen policies announced which which quite uh, directly contravene key human rights protections and, and that decision to close down the Canada-US border uh, to all refugee claimants, uh, no matter where and how they're trying to cross the border from the US into Canada uh, and force them back to remain in the United States, where even before the COVID crisis uh, came along, there was a full-out assault uh, on the safety, dignity, and rights of refugees and migrants in the United States, um, and that is only becoming uh, tenfold worse. Uh, now in the time of COVID in the United States with all sorts of uh, both rhetoric and policy developments from the White House. Uh, so it is very concerning. Uh, you asked about, you know, you know, is it possibly the right public health response? Uh, well, it's not. Um, and in fact, ironically, the, the government's first announcement in this area did have it right on both fronts. And that was that refugee claimants would be allowed to cross the border, but that they would be forced into self-isolation for 14 days uh, to monitor for health issues uh, and and thus 
by being allowed in, uh, our refugee protection obligations were being met uh, by adopting that 14-day self-isolation requirement, our public health uh, obligations were being met. Now, by, by, uh, by closing down the border, um, the possibility that people will nonetheless find, if, if, if sufficiently fearful or desperate, that they are nonetheless going to cross the border and find a way into Canada, uh, how does that solve public uh, right. health concerns there? Uh, and uh, and for those uh, who now just feel stymied and feel unable to cross the border, uh, then they're going to face uh, the hostility, the rights violations, and quite frankly, the likelihood of a rapidly worsening situation in the United States. So this is certainly an area of considerable disappointment. I was in Washington a couple of years ago, and I met representatives from the ACLU to talk about the American experience in providing fairness in that system and, and the answer was really not at all and that the uh, due process was already under some strain even under the obama years and the uh the, the trump administration was proactively r removing additional due process protections and it is concerning obviously at the best of times and at the worst of times in a, in a crisis like this it, Obviously, our attention is focused on health and, and not as many people are writing emails as, as previously about the Safe Third Country Agreement, but it is of concern when we are able to, I th the first question I would have is, do we have the capacity to manage the inflow in a, in a, in a way that is consistent with the best public health advice? And to your point, if we are able to make sure that people are isolated and detained in some fashion in isolation for the 14-day window. Uh, if we don't have that capacity, then we can have a different conversation. But if we do have that capacity, then it strikes me as a, as a measure that is then not consistent with public health advice and certainly inconsistent with our human rights obligations. And so then these competing principles aren't even necessarily in conflict. To the extent that they are in conflict and that we don't have those resources, then I think the focus and I, I, the silver lining in all of this becomes the temporal restriction. So this is only so long as the crisis lasts. And, and then the, the key focus, I think, of human rights advocates, if we are unsuccessful in, in shifting this in the interim, is to say, when this is over, we, we damn well better change things back to where they were before. And I think that's a really important point to pick up on because, uh, you know, from time immemorial in Canada and around the world, uh, there's a very troubling tendency that when we have a bit of a rollback uh, on rights, when we have restrictions on rights which are brought in because of a crisis, you know, the national security crisis that uh, that followed September the 11th would be a great example. Sure. Uh, that. Uh, that what we tend to see is that becomes the new normal. Uh, and uh, the hope and expectation that after a very short period of time, those restrictions on rights that we reluctantly accepted in time of crisis uh, become part of the landscape uh, is, is very common. Uh, or at least we don't fully go back uh, to where things were before. And I guess one of the concerning things here is we know that there has been some interest, including within the current government, but certainly from some of the other federal parties, 
in trying to find a way uh, to entirely shut down the Canada-U.S. border, not just at official border posts, but the entire border uh, to refugee claimants coming in from the United States. Um, and you know, this becomes that opening. Uh, so you're quite right. I think it'll be incumbent upon all of us at a minimum uh, if we can't see this provision withdrawn right now uh, to make sure that it is not going to last uh, beyond the initial 30 days that it's been designated for. Right, exactly. And I don't think I'm going to get to all 10 of your uh, your, your principles and, and points in, in the, uh, the, the putting human rights at the center of the COVID-19 response, but we did cover off racism and xenophobia to some extent, obviously, uh, we talked about the absurdity of continued reference to the Chinese virus. We, we've seen, I mean, this is just an extension of the xenophobia we've seen from the administration in the U.S. in, in recent years, but uh, number four is actually a, a gender-based analysis plus, and we've just started to receive email campaigns talking about putting a feminist lens on, on the response. And I think a number of the asks are emergency, chi emergency child care for essential workers. We've also seen a request for uh, paid sick leave. And obviously that in the current context, we can't put that onus on businesses. There would have to be government funds that would be helping businesses provide for that. But then we've also seen a demand or a request for uh, billions of dollars in assistance for the charities and, and nonprofit sector uh, on the basis that I, I think uh, disproportionately a number of uh, women are working in the not-for-profit sector. But uh, do you have a uh, do you have a sense of where that GBA analysis leads us? Uh, well, I, I, I would first highlight it. It isn't just GBA analysis. It's what's increasingly now referred to as GBA plus, which is which is actually yes. very importantly recognizing that there's a number of, of intersecting identities, gender, race, uh, people living with disabilities, uh, quite a long list, uh, yeah. and and that's really important because it's it's often at the intersection of those identities where the concerns are even graver. Um, this is absolute vital here. I mean, you've you've started to go through a list of the ways in which um, absolutely there's aspects of this pandemic which are disproportionately uh, going to have an impact on women. Uh, we could do the same thing with respect to other identities as well. Um, and if there's not deliberate assessment of that uh, to make sure that as decisions are being made, as funding is being allocated, that that's driving uh, how priorities are set, how the programs are delivered, uh, to make Make sure that those uh, those vulnerabilities aren't overlooked, or or that it's not just assumed uh, that somehow if this applies to everyone, um, then then they will be fine as well. Uh, that I think we're really going to miss the boat. And and going back to that that key human rights message I said earlier about how you know the the the, the crucial reason that human rights needs to be at the table right now is making sure that no one is left behind, um, and it's through a real commitment to to GBA plus analysis now that we get there. And you mentioned a couple times leaving no one behind, and we've talked in a domestic context, but if we get to later, you talk about international cooperation, and there's a special responsibility to help other states. I, I would go further. I, I don't think it's necessarily about helping other states per se. I mean, some states are really uh, terrible administrations, but it's about helping people in other states, um, who uh, all, and all the more so needing to help them because their states are, are so oppressive. And But when we look to that obligation, that international obligation, you mentioned in the context of international cooperation, but I mean, there's, we have the absurdity on the one hand of some, uh, it tends to be conservative politicians who say, 
we've got to protect people at home and we can't be sending resources abroad to the point that even resources to the World Health Organization in the context of a pandemic were, were panned as dollars that should have been kept in Canada, which seems right absurd to me. But so it's not just about leaving no one behind here in Canada. It's got to also about be leaving no one behind around the world. This is a, this is a pandemic that the world faces. Absolutely. And again, I think that's one of the really important aspects that that gets priority attention when you bring a human rights perspective to this, uh, because human rights are universal. Uh, human rights aren't just ours as Canadians, and we as Canadians are not only obliged or encouraged to to look after human rights within our own border we all have a universal responsibility and at a time like this uh could there be any starker illustration of the fact that when it comes to human rights there's no such thing as borders uh this exactly. is something that has spanned the world rapidly that is impacting everyone uh that has in some aspects been carried from country to country by travel uh and it it really highlights how direct interconnected and intertwined we are and that surely no meaningful solution here is going to take us back to a place of, of safety and, and good health if we've not been able to do that for the entire world. And we, as a prosperous country, uh, therefore have a clear extra special responsibility to step up and make sure that that strong global response uh, is happening. And for a country that even in the best of times has not yet lived up to the suggested targets of 0.7% of our uh, gross national income as as an international aid target, uh, this certainly is the time to give that a rethink i and it, both from a, um, there's a moral human rights component to this there's also just a basic national security or domestic security element to this as well when we talk about the connected nature of our world and no better illustration than the wide and unpoliceable border as between the united states and canada where we have right now the united states administration I think, failing to take the serious action that they need to take from a health perspective. And, and that, because of our interconnectedness, jeopardizes Canadians, that we need all countries to do their part or we are we or, or puts the rest of us at jeopardy. I think that's absolutely true. If uh, if if COVID, I mean, let's imagine that COVID-19 somehow gets banished in all countries but one uh, and uh, and that it's still ravaging that one particular country. Well, then none of us are safe uh, if that's the case. Uh, if there's truly going to be uh, the kind of progress towards having having addressed uh, the, the incredible health concerns that come with COVID, uh, that means addressing it everywhere. There's no way around that. So I want to close. We've talked largely about the human rights response in the context of COVID-19, and yet you close out the document, point number 10 is uh, the human rights agenda in the longer term. And, and you highlight a number of different aspects, including w what I think is the, the number one priority, but it's focused on the other long-term crises, uh, or this is a short, the long-term crises, I think, of our time, which is climate change. And you, you speak to laying the groundwork for a carbon neutral economy, which I think is absolutely right. You speak to other long-term uh, focuses for a human rights agenda as well. And so I think it would be nice to close just both what should we be looking to on the outside of this however long this lasts but on the outside of this 
for that long-term human rights agenda broadly for all of us. And then personally, I'd be interested just because you had mentioned being part of Amnesty International and the role that you've been in for so many years, but you are, that role is, is coming to an end. And so uh, do you have a sense of what lies next, not only for the broader human rights agenda, but also for yourself personally? Uh, so I think this uh, this aspect of of where next uh, for human rights uh, after the COVID crisis is vital, uh, and you know I think many people have been talking about this in in all sorts of different ways. Um, that this is certainly a wake up call, uh, but also that it's an incredibly important opportunity for a global reset uh, in how we uh, in how we are as a, an international community, uh, uh, societies everywhere. That that clearly this is pointing out to us that there's so much that is uh, unsustainable, unjust, uh, and dangerous uh, about how we've been living our lives, uh, how we've been on this ramped up, accelerating road of growth, growth, growth uh, for so long now. Uh, and uh, as we do, obviously right now, everyone is understandably focused on the day-to-day -day or even the hour-to-hour -hour challenges of, of the crisis. But pretty soon, as we start to come out of this, we need to have some very serious conversations um, about change, substantial, real change uh, that addresses issues like global health care reform uh, that really gets at uh, the serious concerns around poverty and, and homelessness in our world, the gender uh, inequality gap that is, that is still pervasive everywhere, and certainly uh, the one that you've highlighted, uh, the, the global climate crisis, where uh, it, it's kind of been parked in some respects, uh, but, uh, but that is not going away. Um, and we're going to have to make some major, major changes very rapidly to address that as well. But perhaps if there's any lesson in some ways out of this to see the incredibly significant mobilization that we have seen, uh, internationally, cooperatively, in many respects, in tackling COVID-19, that we carry those lessons and that mobilization through to other crises. Uh, so um, that maybe there's some silver lining in that respect as well. What, uh, and then for you personally, what 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 comes next? Uh, so I am set to to move on from this amazing honor I've had of being Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada for 20 years uh, as of June 30th. Uh, that doesn't mean by any means that I'm retiring from human rights work. I'm not at the age uh, that I'm seeking retirement yet. Uh, but how could I, how could anyone, uh, especially everything that has uh, come at us in these last few weeks in this crisis, uh, walk away from human rights work? Uh, the challenges are immense, but I think as we've also just been noting, the openings and the opportunities are profound right now. And uh, so I certainly imagine continuing to be part of that, uh, still working out you know, from where and in what capacity. Uh, but this is by no means a time in any way to be walking away from human rights work. Well, I will, so long as I'm in Parliament, I will keep uh, leaning on your advice as well in, when it comes to human rights and, uh, and, and beyond. And so I want to thank you for all of your advocacy and, and especially for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. Great. It was a good conversation. Thanks, Nate. And that is episode three of our podcast Uncommons with Alex Neve, Secretary General of Amnesty International Canada, recorded on March 27th. Again, I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. A big thank you to everyone for joining. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca. And a special thanks to Hannah Kaplan for the artwork for this podcast and to Seamus Erskine for the music. Thanks for joining us.